Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of a new podcast series to be hosted on Bunkerzilla.co.uk, the nerds radio of radios. Uh, this is Real History, uh, R-E-E-L, for those of you who want to get the pun, since we're on radio and we're talking, <laughs> <laughs> and you may not be able to see it. My name is Hugh David, I'm also co-host of other podcasts on Bunkerzilla, including Hustlers of Culture with Leslie Pitt and um, Binges and Box Sets with Anna Hussey. Um, my co-host, however, for this new venture is... Jenna Pateman. Jenna, hello. hello. Hi. Uh, welcome to the podcast. And this is, let's be honest, it should be you welcoming me because this has been your idea from the start and it's a brilliant idea. Uh, <laughs> How long have we been talking about this? Uh, two years. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, the idea for, for, for listeners is that we are going to take some fictionalised piece of history, each podcast, and then we're going to discuss the history behind it and the way that the show, game, book, whatever, fictionalises the history. And if you're wondering why we think we can do that, uh, Jenna's currently f- uh, finishing her degree in history. Yeah. Um, and you are also uh, working with your local history association, I believe? Yes, uh, the Gloucestershire History Association, uh, shortened to HA. Uh, we are a countrywide organisation. Um, we organise uh, talks on a monthly basis on loads of different um, topics. So from l- last year, we had everything from LGBT history right through to the history of GCHQ, which is in our local area. Um, so and they're normally very cheap. So find your local HA and go along. They're great. Fantastic. Uh, I myself have a, a half a history degree. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a degree that no longer exists. I have a law with history degree from the University of Sussex. Uh, it was it, a lot fa- fascinating insight into the world of academia. Um, the landlord tutor at the university at the time was a historian as well because. Frankly, if you're going to do land law, you need to know your history. Mm. And uh, he and the history department were like, ooh, let's combine forces. And then as he started to develop the, the courses and try to get each department to involve, both departments were like, oh, no, this is too complicated. Oh, no, wait, you don't, this is, you're not working. What's really happening here? We don't want to do this. And so by the time I left, there were two more years after me, and then that was it. They shut down the course. He was oh. very unhappy. I know, yeah. he, he was very unhappy. So anyway, that was still enough for me to get a, a job, to go into PGC history and I've been a teacher of English and history uh, well two stints now in my life one time up until 2001 and then more recently for the last three years so um, yeah that's our reasons why we are into history but also as some I've worked in the media you and I met through my work in the media so we like a little bit (laughs) yeah so we like stuff that is media friendly we like what we're interested in fiction we're interested in how things are fictionalized yeah and um, um, I will say a particular passion point for me is animation. So Yes, exactly, um, which is what we met through. Yes, yeah. uh, considering I did my dissertation basically on Disney. So Today's episode of Real History is going to be about this year's most uh, awards-nominated TV miniseries, HBO and Sky's co-production, Chernobyl. And many people have watched it. Um, the Blu-ray is about to be hit British uh, uh, shops and online shops. So more yeah. people will get to see it then. It will be on streaming options as well. Um, so I think this is a good time for us to talk. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? 
Oh, I can hear you now. There we go. All right, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I may or may not edit th- things like that out. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's everyday, normal, fun. Exactly. Yeah, internet. Glitches are a part of history. That's part of the thing I like, and Just that's part. Of, <laughs> and that's one of the things we're going to be talking about because, of course, a lot of fictional things, fictionalized histories, remove the glitches, and I think those are the interesting bits. But we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. So let's give people some background. So trying to build a mini series, I'll give them back to another the mini series, and then you can give them mm-hmm. some background on the historical event itself. Yeah. Uh, so trying to build a mini series is a five-part drama. Each hour is each episode is an hour long. Um, it's written by an American, Craig Mazin, who up until now is best known for uh, fairly lightweight commercial movies. So this is the f- kind of a big new sort of uh, te- productive achievement for him. People are like, oh, wow, this is amazing, uh, and so forth. In addition, you have a director who's a fantastic and well-known director of videos and adverts on the continent, uh, Johan Rank, and he has shot the entire thing from start to finish, which is not as rare as it used to be in television, but it's quite rare still. Mm. And it means it all has a very coherent vision. And it's stuck because it's a British co-production. It is stuffed full of British actors as and European British actors, absolutely, actors and actresses, absolutely. And also has a good range of European actors as well. Uh, mm. So there's a real kind of interesting variety to the performances and the stars, even though it's all shot in English. Um, so yeah, so this and and it's become incredibly fetid. The reviews have been great. The critics have been generous. Uh, personal opinion, if you look online, has been massive. People are very affected by the film. Well, I call it a film because it felt like that because I binge watched yeah. it. Um, it is constructed as a TV show. You can watch it episode by episode. I um, actually watched it week by week as it was coming out. Uh, mm-hmm. Partly when I was trying to avoid writing my dissertation. Um, <laughs> So, uh, because I was up very late, I watched it as it was premiering on Sky. So, wow! Um, and how yeah. did you? How did you? Did you? Would you agree with me that it works as a, like a TV show? Still, in that each week you're going, oh my god, what's going to happen next? Um, or would yes you and say no? Because okay. part of me was like, well, I already know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is the problem with real history, isn't it? This is the bit what we're going to be discussing <laughs> yes. with people is to what degree is fictionalizing something where historians have already analyzed and discussed the reality, the, the reality as far as we're aware of it. To yeah. what degree does that make fictionalizing it a tough thing to do yeah. in terms like, of entertainment? Is it a twist that the Titanic hit an iceberg? It, well, this is the thing, and at the time, and since then, for some people, it is because of when yeah. they were born and what their level of historical knowledge is. So, yeah. and and I don't think it. Uh, one of the things we don't plan on doing here is, I, m- much as you and I can feel like this sometimes personally, I don't plan on uh, uh, making fun of anyone who says things that people go, "Oh my God, how did you not know that?" Because I don't think that's fair. Well, everyone has a different knowledge base. I mean, yeah, I. As you know, I often come out with some very stupid things on things that I don't know. Uh, yeah. On history, I'm pretty good, but um, well, I will say Soviet Union is a, a little bit of a weakness for me. But I probably know a little bit more than the person on the street. So yeah. Yeah. if we get something wrong, then we get something wrong. It's that's how everyone learns. That's it exactly, that. and we and we will be more than open to people. Uh, contacting us after the cast to correct us. We are doing our research as we go along, but occasionally 
you know, there will be mistakes. There will be areas where there are greater depths of study that someone else has has, has access to and can and can uh, correct us. And we will be more than happy to acknowledge those in future episodes. So, starting from where we are now, uh, that's what we're going to be. That's what we're talking about now. Tell Jenna, tell us about a bit, a little bit about the historical event that the miniseries is is, is introducing people to. Yeah, so the Chernobyl uh, incident happened at the Lenin plant uh, near the town of Pripyat. Um, The town of Chernobyl is actually a little further away from the Chernobyl plant, Um, but Pripyat even uh, was actually set up as a town city for the people that were working in the local power station to live and to ha- there were 20 schools there was a swimming pool there was a theme park about to open um there was this was supposed to be a utopian town uh the one of the things that i think most people know about the soviet union is the fact that there were queues for food uh there were shortages in towns like this, there was not. There were people were able to get what they wanted quickly, and so it was that kind of. This is how we want to make the Soviet Union. This uh, this this is kind of our flagship town kind of thing. Uh, all standardized buildings, um, facilities, green spaces, mm-hmm. and just built for those people. Um, so, ironically, uh, the Chernobyl incident happened at one o'clock in the morning, 23 minutes past, and according to the show, 45 seconds afterwards. So, which is why the first episode is called 1234, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it was happened during a safety test. So, um, they were trying to see how far the reactor could go uh basically if the power had gone so uh it meant that uh it couldn't what would they do between that minute of power going out and the generators backing in mm-hmm. um because the chernobyl plant was i'm just gonna call it the chernobyl plant because that's every, yep. that's what people know it as exactly. um, it was uh, what's called an RBMK reactor mm-hmm. um, these were designed to be cheap, to run, make maintain um, and also able to be very quickly turned into being able to produce weapon grade plutonium mm-hmm. uh, that's why they were made yeah um, with a lot of stuff in the Soviet Union, uh, stuff was rushed. Uh, construction mm-hmm. was rushed uh, because then people like the own well, the owners were put in abbreviated commas mm-hmm. uh, could get their completion bonuses. Basically, in the Soviet system, you would there was a yearly quota, and if you reached that quota, you would get a bonus. Mm-hmm. which meant that people had to rush through things. And a lot of the time, say you're in a factory and you're making gloves, mm-hmm. that factory would often lie about how many gloves they had mm-hmm. made. Uh, if they had made too many, they would yep. say, oh, we only made this many. 
if they had made two less, they would go, yeah, we achieved our quota because they wanted their bonuses. They wanted that prestige. Um, so, yeah, it's... <sighs> so some of the faults of the test came from that rush building of the design and the flaws of the design. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just need to take a breath. <laughs> that's okay, that's fine. Would you like me to step in for a minute? Yes. So, good. yeah, no, I think all of that is fantastic and puts us in a very important perspective on the building, the reactor, the purposes of it, why the Soviet Union built it. This is all stuff people need to know because they don't examine this in great detail in the series itself. Mm. Um, they, there's a certain the, the the series throws you in at the very beginning, and while there's a degree of background given across the episodes, it's more interested in the event, uh, the immediate lead up to it, and then the ma- the long aftermath. Yeah, uh, I will say that. Uh, sorry, they no, do please, do um, like occasional, as you know, kind yeah. of <laughs> talking like. Uh, mentioning that uh, Lithuania, Ukraine and Belarus are all part of the Soviet Union. Something obviously the characters would know. <laughs> yeah, it's that classic American thing of, hey, we need to find a way, well, classic production thing of, we need to find a way to make sure the audience knows it. Yeah, and uh, uh, explaining what the communist youth stuff was and yeah, just sort true. of quickly filling in people to like, oh, this is something that the Soviet Union did. So, yes. I mean, um, I will say in the final episode, they do mention the Soviet system being partly the cause, but it's very quickly glossed over because to explain it, really, it, it would take a long time because it was a complicated system. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was communism, I guess. That's just... It's well, no, it, I, think, yeah. I think that's that's kind of part of the thing that I found interesting about seeing an American and British co-production about mm. a particular time and place that used to be considered uh, not just the enemy of, of these states, but also was seen as the... Uh, as being antithetical in every way, philosophically, uh, intellectually emotionally you know it was never yeah. it, it was so it, it culturally it was seen as you know you you mentioned it, it it's particularly in the current more right-wing era that we're living through in the west um you know it's the word the, the word communism is constantly used not just as a way of tarring uh all left-wing thinkers or forget left-wing center yeah. thinkers to, to the left <laughs> But it's also um, seen just as a, a one-word summary of something that is wrong on every level. Yeah. Where with no nuance, no complexity, no kind of reference to the reality. Um, and I think that this show is an interesting one to do to produce and, and air at this time for the, for exactly that reason, because I felt like it did a. At first, I thought, oh, so uh, you know, I was watching that first episode and I was thinking, huh, okay, this is good, but there's a a little bit of a you know, it, it, I feel like I'm coming at this from a western perspective yes and then as the as the episodes rolled in there was greater nuance greater depth and 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 by the end you know by the end I was pretty much sold on the uh, on the not just the approach of the show but the success but I'll, I'll come to that in a minute yeah allow me to add some personal reflections to your excellent summary of the history yeah, so because um I wasn't born yet. No, <laughs> that's true. You weren't. No, um, I was born in 1988. Um, so I was alive when the Berlin Wall fell. 
but mm-hmm. I I think I was more interested in like my little pony at that time. <laughs> so um, yeah, to be honest. So, yeah, so uh, I'm 48 at the moment, and I was a teenager living in Switzerland when the Chernobyl disaster occurred. Um, and just to and your reference point of the Berlin Wall that that came down in my first year at university, so that gives you a sense of timing. Yes. Um, so I, along with a lot of other children in European countries, and again, this is one an interesting thing because the miniseries is, remains entirely focused on the Russian experience to its credit, mm. um, and mentions the Russians' perception of what's happening outside. So. It, and that's good because I think it would get into a whole other mess of complexity if it was trying to look at the, re- the Western response. Yeah. But I just want to add that in now because that is something that is missing, fr- uh, slightly missing from the show. Uh, in Switzerland, where I lived at the time, we it was mandatory for all buildings to have of a certain age to have uh, safety bunkers in the ce- instead of cellars. So yeah. they were they were concrete line cellars that were designed with with lockable gates, and the idea was that you were supposed to leave a minimum amount of food, water, exe- you know, useful tools and whatnot in there. So in the case of a nuclear uh, disaster or war or something like that, citizens would would be they would they, they had a te- siren that they tested once a year or twice a year, and then you would, if it actually went off, you were supposed to go down into these places, lock all the doors above you, and switch on the radio and wait to, to hopefully wait it out. And even my school had the bunkers. Yeah. You know, and so well, uh, it was the Cold War. That was a real possibility, I guess. It um, was seen as one by the Swiss. Yeah. Uh, government, not other, you know, as, as I'm sure, as you as you'll be aware as a historian, not many countries did this. No. <laughs> you know, this is a quite a rare thing. Yeah, um, so uh, I, you know, as you say, it's the Cold War. Um, yeah, um, um, living John. in Cheltenham, uh, which is, a, I can't remember who it's according to. I might be wrong, but um, we're the third most likely place to get nuked because, because of, of GCHQ. GCHQ exactly. Which, um, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, is locally nicknamed the Donut. And love, <laughs> looks like a target, and yes. it's like seriously, guys. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, it's the, so it's the headquarter for British communications. Yes, uh, in terms of all military uh, communications and, and intelligence-related communications. Yes. Um, however, it, it also has a famous public history because of its role in World War Two. Yeah, because it uh, started with Bech- uh, Bletchley Park, which yes. uh, with Alan Turing. He's yes. going on the £50 note. I know, it's Sorry. excellent news. No, <laughs> please, no, this is, this is history is current, it's not over yet. Yes. So, so, so coming back to Chernobyl, I Sorry. think... <laughs> don't Don't worry, it's fine. Uh, I think... I think really what I'm trying to say is that when it happened, we, we, we didn't know the full extent, but we also... So we were all trying to prepare for the worst. Mm. And weather reports on television started to have to include information about the potential fallout in the atmosphere or radioactive elements and how far they were going to go. We had to look at the food stuff and the food chains and whether or not we'd have to buy certain items from the supermarket now in case future stuff coming was going to be um, uh, irradiated at any level. Um, So we had to think about that. Um, uh, So I think that was, you know... That puts a different spin on it slightly yeah. when you are um, 
when you're that age, you kind of think you know, the, it, it, it brands the, the event in your mind and it makes you wonder, mm. well, how did it happen? Why did it happen? Uh, so I think it's kind of like one of those things where um, if I hadn't been living Hello. Hey, can you? Oh, is my mic gone again? It went for a second. Okay, all right. Um, so I think it's one of those things where, if you, when you've had to consider the direct impact on your life immediately, yeah. even though you're in the West, it will. It remains a point of fascination. Mm. And you, there's a number of people because, of course, it was one. There were considerations in Britain as to whether it would reach the the winds would bring it over Scotland and Wales and whatnot and affect Yeah, um, I read somewhere that uh, they actually started bringing sheep down from the hills to yes. try and ensure them that they were safe, basically. And yes. It, that's not something you'd ever consider with Chernobyl, because it's like, but it's so far away, but the wind yeah. just carried it. And uh, it wasn't Russia, well, I say Russia, the Soviet Union didn't announce it to the world until basically Sweden had found out about it. Yes. And they were like, hey, what's going on? Why is this one random person setting off our radio uh, radioactive alarms, basically? Yes. And yeah. that's when it started to unravel what had happened. And there was a lot of denial about it. Like uh, you see in the show, they go to West Germany for a robot and even though everyone knows what's happened at Chernobyl, it's they're still lying about the amount of Rankins coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And they're using the propaganda of, like, it's 2,000 Rankins when it was closer to, like, 12,000. But what I find interesting yeah. is, the, is the idea that... Which the show makes quite clear, which is the idea that they gave the lower reading because that's the highest reading on the kickoff yes! they had. That <laughs> fascinated me. The idea that that the it wasn't malicious propaganda to make the West go, oh, you know, nothing's wrong. Yeah. It was actually a genuine... Uh, and I, you can't even call it a cock-up because if the equipment only works a certain way, you know, then... Yeah. It, it, because I mean, this is part of what I found so fascinating about the the way the TV show examines and portrays the uh, the, the sweep of events, and then the analysis as the events are happening, and they're trying to fix things, and then the post analysis in court afterwards yeah. in the hearings. Um, and in this sense, they're drawing from some very well-known books, including um, Chernobyl Prayer, Voices from Chernobyl by Svetlana Alexievich, which is considered widely considered the classic kind of um, collection of, of interviews and testimonies. Um, Alexievich was a, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2015, um, which gives you some example of the quality. Um, and that was very important to... Uh, Mazin when writing this but also the other one that's quite important is um, a more recent history which is uh, Serhiel Plocky's Chernobyl History of a Tragedy yeah. um, we, and and the, that won the Bailey Gifford Prize in 2018 so you know the the, the book the, 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 you know, the, the, the show is incredibly well researched one wants to believe a great deal of what they portray including as you say that sense of 
yes, there was propaganda because that's what the, all states, whether Soviet Union or anyone else, engages yes. in. But also, it's that thing of well, we don't, we don't, we didn't believe this could happen, so we trust our instruments and our machines, and our machines tell us this. But that's because we don't realize it's it's got to be higher than that. Yeah. Well, it's like the um, at the very start, they're like, oh, it's only three point something for the Rankins because that was as high as their tests on site would go. Mm-hmm. So that's why there wasn't. There was panic, but there were, it, they just thought, oh, the coolant has exploded. It's not the nuclear uh, core itself. Um, yeah, and that fascinates me. The idea yeah. that nowhere in the world had a core ever exploded. So it's not. So if this had happened anywhere else, the issues would have been the same. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't have been brought about for the same reason, but the, how to deal with it, the consequences, that would have been the same. And that fascinates me because it makes it, again, considering that you currently have uh, a number of soft power and intelligence conflicts going on between the current Russia yeah. and the West, um, and this show has fallen into that and been used as part of that, and now the Soviet, the Russia, Russia is planning to make its own version. Yes, of the events. true version, apparently. So, right. Yeah. Um, which we, will be yeah. interesting. Well, they, 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 there's a reference to the idea they're going to build on in this version of Chernobyl, where mm. some one character mentions the possibility of of American sabotage. Yeah. And that I will be interested to see whether or not the Russian version supplies any believable evidence for that. Um, there's, you know, ours not to dispute, as historians, not to, not to dispute sources if they are brought up unless we have sufficient evidence to dispute them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it's even mentioned in this version and that there were people at the time who still felt it was a possibility um, is something that, you know, that was believed and therefore maybe we need to try and you know, maybe that's a thing that we'll yeah. well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm not, you know, as as with all things in historical fields, I don't want to just rule it all out. Even though I know we have such a consistent grouping of testimonies and evidence for the view that's been put forward in this TV show. Um, the because I uh, listened to the five episode podcast that Ooh. they put out as well. Yeah, um, I mean, was I, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, um, I just, just briefly want to say, I think I feel like they did a brilliant job of giving us a set of commentaries before the Blu-ray. <laughs> Yes. It's almost like because every ep- every podcast is the length of the episode. Yeah, well it's a little bit shorter. It's like 45 oh, okay. minutes. Okay. Okay, so. right, yeah. Yeah. They're brilliant but, though. Yeah, they're really really fascinating. And they do a lot to explain why they made certain changes and mm-hmm. um like the character oh, I can't remember her name. Yulara? Is that how you say it? Go on. The female scientist. Yep. Uh she was a composite composite character yes. of basically all the scientists. Yes. Because uh, in, Ulana, that's it. Yeah. Ulana comic. Um in because there was a team of like 
I think it was up to a hundred scientists mm-hmm. and trying to do all their stories and trying to get them all to talk to each other would just be unwieldy for a TV show. So they made this one character to represent them. And I think they were very good about being very upfront about that in the podcast. And actually in the epilogue, uh, this is what happened after sort of thing. They do mention that as well. So they're saying, look, we're trying to keep as close to the history as we can, but some things do need to be changed for the um, story, basically. So. Well, well, now you raise a point that is going to come up again and again when yes. we do other episodes of this series. That, to me, is the reason why we're doing this series. Mm. This idea that storytelling and the dramatics of storytelling must take priority Mm. over historical reality. I've been thinking about this a lot for years now, and I'm increasingly of the view that I don't believe that that is the right way round in terms of priority. Okay. I'm increasingly of the belief that because... The more we study certain events in history, the more fascinating and incredible and frequently dramatically unbelievable reality is. (laughs) And and I find the idea frequently of people saying, oh, but the audience wouldn't believe that or the audience wouldn't care about that. So we're going to have to do, you know, X, Y and Z to it to make it believable. I am increasingly feeling over the years now that what this is actually doing is making things the same homogenous and and i don't dispute the idea that historically audiences have got used to certain things Mm. and they're used to certain things and there are certain things that used to get an audience on your side or get them interested in a certain way but i also feel like storytelling has come a long long way and evolved a great deal and we are now in the 21st century in a place where a lot risk you one one ought to be able to take greater risks because of the multi layered nature of media experiences these days you mm. people to screen it you know they double dual screen it sorry yeah. they you know, or triple screen it even you know someone's on 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 in social media while watching something and they're in communication with people you know some people are uh, blogging about something or doing something you know the other things are people doing multiple things at multiple times yeah and some people are very good at taking in multiple things. And I also feel like if you listen to a lot of podcasts or watch a lot of them, which you do, certainly more than I do, yeah. and I, and you see groups and people behaving in groups, you've, you, know, you know that it's not all about lone heroes and lone heroines. No. I, I feel that's a very American, very Western take on it. I mean, the very first episode, the guy interviewing the director, writer-director on the podcast mm. says, oh, I used to teach drama and theatre, and when I, when I did that, I used to say to the people, I don't care if, you, if what you just wrote is what your mother actually said. I don't care. Get me to believe it. And I was thinking, no. I was like, fundamentally, I have a problem right there, because if yeah. you as an audience member hear something that was based in reality and you go, I don't care. Well, why are you bothering to watch the play or the story? Where's your empathy? You know, it's a fundamental starting point that says, you're not interested in the story I have to tell you, so I have to make you interested. Mm. And actually, in this day and age, we're marketers. We have marketing. We have, you know, social media. We have ways of getting people interested. 
Yeah, I think also one problem with the dramatization of history stories is that a lot of people take that as the gospel and take that as the truth of what actually happened. When Agreed. There is a lot more nuance. Um, like, as much as we've mentioned, I'm a Disney fan. Mm-hmm. Pocahontas did not happen how Pocahontas happened. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It- a lot of people take it as what um, the, the film as, oh, that it was this grown-up woman. No, she was a child. It was this lovely-looking man. No, he was ugly as butt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Have you seen The New World? With Colin Farrell in the role no, not of yet. the lead, and you really should. Okay. You really should. I, I there are things that we're going to have to do an episode on that. Okay. Um, and we can do it as a comparison of both it and the Disney Pocahontas as an episode because I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, but yes, sorry, you were trying to say the the idea of, of people taking it gospel. This is as a history teacher, I have to say this is a massive problem. Yeah. And in the nineties, when I was was first teaching. Um, I got involved with a project that the BFI sponsored for uh, teachers to discuss whether or not we should be using clips from films and TV shows in class. Because at the time, Mm. there was still a a generation or two of history teachers who felt you should not use fictional portrayals. Yeah. You should use documentary material only. And this was when... And in the 90s, of course, Steven Spielberg was busy remaking the History Channel constantly. So... (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot of big budget stuff out there, yeah. and a lot of kind of uh, you, you know this is we we had we had uh, Saving Private Ryan, and we had uh, uh, Amistad, and we had Schindler's List, and then yeah. James Cameron did Titanic, and do you know what I mean? There was just a lot of stuff happening. It was that uh, historical epic kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The David Lean style epic of of the early part of the twentieth century was back, yeah. and we kind and and so. I had a lot of kids asking me questions. And, of course, you had TV ones as well. Yeah. You know, on ITV, Channel 4, BBC. Uh, period drama and costume drama has never really gone away in British TV. And I think... And so it was. So as a history teacher, you're standing there going, well, that's not really how it happened. And they go, ooh. And you're like, well, yeah, because they made it to entertain you. Let's. But then there are other things where they haven't ever done it quite right. Like, I remember studying... The sources on the, on Guy Fawkes and the Gunpowder Plot and Catesby yeah. and that Robert Catesby and all that lot and I, and in the nineties I just remember thinking crikey no one's filmed it this way no. this would be amazing and of course it's now yeah. been done twice yes. you know once for ITV once for BBC one, the ITV one has Robert Carlyle the BBC one has Kit Harrington yes. um, but oh, the point oh, is yeah I, I I was I didn't I totally watch that for the plot yes. of course you did yeah of course <laughs> um, but the thing is that you know. <laughs> Those names are exactly why people watch them. You're going to have to have... Some, yeah, this, I understand that you need... There are certain dramatic licenses that have to be taken. Yes. But I always feel like we lose a little bit of something that was genuinely unusual, interesting, and different about the history. So in this case, I can understand them wanting to narrow down all these scientists to a single character, but I would have felt better if we'd seen a few more scientists and she was the one taking their ideas and going off to do it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, uh, just, even if it was some extras milling around kind yeah, of thing in the background. Of, but yeah, because at the moment you feel like there's only three scientists in total involved in the whole thing. Yeah, when with Soviet Russia, they were very proud of their scientists. Yes, um, and justifiably. Yeah, the fact of... The Soviet Union was quite regressive in its gender roles. Women were still 
the cooks, the housekeepers, the traditional roles, basically. Mm-hmm. Apart from in sciences, in medicine and... Ooh, and the military. And the military, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, women were actually able to achieve, they were able to go on and get higher roles, yeah. like uh, the made-up character of Yulana. Yeah. Uh, that's one reason that they chose to use a woman character was to represent that as well. Yes, so. and, and and I think they did that very well. And Emily Watson's a, a, one of the great actresses of, of the modern era, and I think yes. and she doesn't get enough credit, generally speaking, uh, let alone for, for, for her le- more recent roles. And I think um, she was magnificent in it. I could have watched her do that. Or you know, I could have watched her as the main character, like <laughs> constantly. But yes. but but the thing is that because she's fictionalized, there's a, they can allow her to do things dramatically that keep the story going. My yeah. bigger issue is with the main character, sci- the scientist, um, which is which was Mazin's way into the story as a whole, which is Valerie Legasov, yes. played by Jared, the great Jared Harris, and which I will say. Is acted to super, is superbly acted. He yeah. is stunning in that role. He's amazing. I mean, he 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 very rarely puts a foot wrong in any role he does. But you're right; he's particularly good here. Um, but they removed, and this is the thing they say in the very first podcast. They decided not to reference the fact he had a wife and children. Yeah, and they say this was important because they needed the audience to focus on the event, they needed the audience to focus on his response, and they needed the audience to not be worrying. Yeah, they didn't want to have extra scenes of worry as he's trying to talk to family at home and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah, they were saying um, that it was... They didn't want the whining of, like, the kids at home wanting their dad to be back while he's off dealing with a really important event, so... And I find... I find, again, I find that borderline offensive. Hmm what you mean the emotional life of this character that is not important to his motivations you know we we see him and the great Stellan Skarsgård both coming to terms with the realization that by taking charge of the situation on the ground and being there physically they are going to get themselves killed from long-term exposure from the long-term effects of radiation exposure and they're both grappling with that fact continually throughout the 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 days and weeks we see them in the show and then eventually years now if you without the knowledge that he is has a wife and children he's trying to live he wants to live for but the only way he can get them to live is for him to die to me is massively tragic and hugely important and it made it seem like he was a bit of a loner Yes! Like, he was that obsessed scientist that didn't care about family kind of thing. That yes! He was, I am career-focused, I am doing yeah. my science stuff. Rather yeah. That family stuff, meh, kind of yeah. thing. So. And I don't think that's very fair. I feel like they lost an emotion. I feel like for a wider audience, that's an important emotional hook. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have a family, you're a mother. Yes, yeah. You know. um, I will say, like, the scenes on, like, the... Uh, what's nicknamed the Bridge of Death, yeah, where oh they God, had yes. the kids out, and I was just like, "I'm going to go cuddle my daughter now." Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. it's incredibly affecting the way. Uh, and oh, okay, that brings me to another point. <laughs> Sorry. So, so, no, 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 you are spot on because you just brought because because I think I've I think I've made it quite clear my my issues about removing the scientist family. But let me also add that I feel like the choice to direct the entire thing in a kind of 
horror movie mode. Mm. Every once in a while, particularly early on, I feel like sh- the way we are shown children and families is practically... Forget disaster movie stuff from the 70s. It's practically willing us to go, oh my god, these people are going to die. Yeah. And, and I find that slightly manipulative. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, obviously not everyone at this Chernobyl died. Uh, yes, like exactly. The, the divers, the three men that... Well, they didn't actually volunteer in real life, but... Uh, the writer wanted the scene of at least them saying their names to yes. show who they were. Yes. Um, they survived. They exactly. went into that radiated water and that scene is terrifying and it is tense, even watching it on a small iPad, which I was watching it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was also at the same time that Game of Thrones had just had their episode in the dark basically and it was showing the differences which was really interesting well Um, yeah yeah and that brings us something to something i think we'll come across again in this podcast series which is uh the the hboification of history (laughs) well yes going right um, back to rome (laughs) <laughs> which became the, the the two seasons of Rome is is that is is basically the template for mm. all future HBO historicals, but except possibly Deadwood, which managed to carve its own niche. But the thing is that there is now because of that a certain dramatic way of, or lens that we that people now expect to see history through. Yeah, and like, again, I'm not sure that's a good thing. They still managed to get their nudity in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I and I and, and and it's a little bit worrying when you get to a point where you're going, oh look, there's the HBO tick box. <laughs> you know, you should. Yes. You and I have both said this before. You shouldn't be able to see the production thinking coming across that obviously mm. in the final product. It should, if it's a story well told, it's the story that hooks you. Yes. Um, and I shouldn't be sitting there... And, and to be fair, there were more than enough times throughout the episode where I was gasping... In the series, sorry, where I was gasping or shocked. I mean, in particular, when he, they're flying... Episode 2, where the helicopters are being flown in. Yeah. Oh, my heart was in my mouth because I knew what was going to happen. And it was yeah. so much more horrible and tragic to see it go down knowing what was going to down because you and Legasov... Legasov knows it's going to happen. Yeah. He knows it. It's it's Skarsgård's. Uh, I bet must get the names right. It's Stellan Skarsgård's character Boris Shabina, who who who's the one who's like, well, I think we should still do this anyway. And the, and and the the the, the great part, what makes this such a great miniseries and such a great piece of uh, both fiction and uh, well, real history mm-hmm. is the moment where Legos sort of says, well, what do we do now? And Shabina yeah. goes, we send in the next one. Yeah, and you realise that this is going to be the only way to deal with this tragedy. If they're going to stop this thing, this tragedy, from impacting the rest of the world beyond, not just Chernobyl, but beyond Russia, it's sort of the Soviet Union itself, they are going to have to sacrifice a large number of knives. Yeah, and they were doing the thing, uh, counting lives. They called it. Yes. So basically, they would weigh up which option had cost the least lives. And and this is possibly the thing I liked the most about this version of events. Um, this is now the second time I've seen a Russian story told by Americans that places a justifiable emphasis on the sacrifice of 
Russians, both expert and ordinary, mm. in order to prevent a nuclear disaster that would have impacted well beyond the borders of the Soviet Union. And that is a level of heroism and sacrifice that most people do not consider when they say the word communism. No. They don't think about the, the Eastern Front in World War Two. No. They don't think about the fact at the end of World War Two, the greatest number of losses was to the Russian side, specifically numerically, yeah. compared to everyone else. I will say with uh, the World Wars, people always forget they were World Wars. There weren't just the one front. Exactly. Like, uh, especially with World War One, there were fronts in Africa that people don't seem to actually know about. Yeah, That's no, why exactly. it was a World War. It was yeah, world that... spread. And yeah. Russia was involved greatly in both wars so, exactly yeah. yeah i mean the the uh, north african front is where my maternal grandfather served so oh, wow. um well he was south african and the south yeah. africans originally being with the africana government they originally supported hitler <laughs> oh, and then, yes and then changed their minds very quickly <laughs> so when they changed their minds they sent f- allied forces over and they recruited people of all colors including indians so they oh, sent cool. oh no wait no i think the, i think i think they sent no hang on i gotta get this right i think I might, I might be confusing this with World War One, where they sent they, they didn't set, they were the the blacks were not allowed to serve as soldiers, but they were allowed to do menial work. Yes, I, yes. I, I, I can't. I haven't studied it for World War Two, so I need to check on that. Um, um, but I know for a fact that Indians served because the we have a picture of my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, with two other uh, colleagues of his. Yeah. Uh, in their uniforms. Um, so you're absolutely right. Uh, on, on that front, this is where Chernobyl scores so highly as as an adaptation of history. It it shows us sacrifice after sacrifice it's the scientists on the at the very start of the process it's the firemen it's the first responders and yeah. and, and again i thought that was really interesting because americans have made have have realized the importance of first responders in a more in an even more dramatic sense post 9/11 yeah you know and so i thought that tapped into a very american feeling of disaster and how you deal with it you know the the yeah. first episode feels the first and second episode feel recall in interesting visual ways and storytelling ways the 9/11 narrative and i thought yeah. that was really important um to, to get it across but also there's this whole thing of when the when they go to get the miners involved it's it, it it's so brilliantly drawn and you know a reminder that within the soviet union not everybody believed in the way communism had become executed by bureaucracy but yeah. uh, but still believed in the fundamental basic ideas of people and community well one of the things they did show as well was again uh, going back to the first episode was that kind of old guard communist uh, yes. he was uh, a character that had been alive during the actual revolution and yes. had seen... Oh, the town council? Yeah. Yes. And he was the one that was like, we need to protect the workers from themselves, basically. Yeah, which um, is slight, slightly... No, it's not slightly. It is terribly um, uh, patronising, but it's a, it's a view that was held. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, but... That, to me, shows the timeline, because people seem to forget that during this time, there would have been people still alive who had seen Lenin and Stalin, had seen the Tsar's fall, and had seen all the incidents that happened during the Soviet Union, and were still steadfast believers in it. Yeah, And, and I think that's... Whenever you read Western analysts of various aspects of 
Russia and the Soviet Union and then back to Russia over the course of the that set the 20th century and into yeah. the 21st the one thing that the best of them always emphasize is that you cannot study and analyze the mindset without recognizing the internal sen- belief and sense of having constantly sacrificed not just for country but for glow for the world mm. and and yet then always being seen as the enemy yeah and that's a crucial part of understanding their psychology mm. and why they do what they do and how they do what they do. And that goes right up to the present day. So on that note, given where we are with time. Yes. Um, let's, <laughs> I think we could talk about this for a very, very long time. We could indeed. <laughs> and it may be something we'll have to come back to in a later series. Um, but I think this is a great start to our series. Let's wrap this up. So yes. for the next five minutes, let's. this is what we're going to do with every episode. We are going to say... To uh, how, how well does this qualify as real history, R-E-E-L, versus real history, R-E-A-L? Real or real? Which do we think it's <laughs> most of? And, you know, we're not going to be binary about this. If we say, well, it's about 30% or 70%, we will. We're not going to just say it's yes or no. Mm. But certainly, in your opinion, Jenna, yes. do, you, do you think, given everything we've just said, do you think that the miniseries qualifies as a good example of fictionalized history do you think it's too fictionalized not fictionalized enough etc what's your take i for the story that it is for chernobyl mm-hmm. and for considering budgetary and television and what it is okay. i think it's one of the closest things we could get to it Okay. As I said, there are still problems like the fact of maybe they should have had a few scientists bibbling around as extras or even just one or two speaking roles. But I can still understand why they did what they did. Okay. Um, I think it's going more towards the real, as in not not non-fictionalised, yeah, reality, yeah, rather than fictionalised. But yeah. it still has those problem areas, yes. which I think all historical media is going to have. Even documentaries, even yes. books, everything is going to be missing something. And it's, it is always interesting to see what they left out, mm-hmm. uh, because that tells its own story as well. Agreed. But I can see, with this series, I can see why they did what they did. Uh, they tried as much as they could to get to reality, like uh, the locations that they used were all in, I think, Lithuania. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because of the communist uh, sort of standardization of building, they were able to have locations that looked very close to what Chernobyl and Pripyat yeah. looked like. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. shot, it was mostly Vilnius uh, in Lithuania that they shot in. Um, hang on, I'm just checking the filming locations to see if they used anywhere else. Uh, so they used Vilnius, which is Pripyat. Yes. Right? They used Kaunas in Lithuania, which is where they, for the, which stood in for the sixth Moscow Clinical Hospital. They mm. did shoot some stuff on location in Chernobyl itself. Yes. Not a lot. Obviously, not a lot. Uh, and then uh, Ignalina in Lithuania stood in for the power plant itself. Yeah. And then Kiev in the Ukraine is where they shot exterior scenes. Yeah. So that's so. So when they talked about the Ukraine and the miners, that I'm guessing is where they actually did film it there. Yeah. Which is even more amazing to me. Um, there are okay. So my take on this, because I think yours is an excellent take on it, and I would 
actually agree with you on almost every <laughs> level, which I don't think we're going to do every episode. No. Um, but so briefly, all I will add is that there's a number of videos doing the round on YouTube allowing you to compare uh, footage from the time, news footage yeah. from the time of the event with the show. And I think what surprises there is not what they changed. My my point, my overall negative, much as I love horror films, I think the horror film aesthetic overshadows some of the existing human drama. I think a lot of stuff is shrouded in grey and darkness and, you know, there are moments that feel a bit Silent Hill and it's like, well, <laughs> okay guys, I love Silent Hill to bits, but this is a real event. Um, and and I, I think the grain that they put over as well, the sort of filter to make it look yeah. older also added to that as well. Yeah, and I and I feel like that might not necessarily be necessary, particularly when you when you see that a lot of the eighties footage is old school because um, because uh, news footage was shot on one inch videotape back then, umatic tape. Oh, okay. So um, it has that bright, like BBC. BBC sitcom look. Yeah, you know it's all very uh, it, like all the lighting bounces and everything's very bright and clean and colourful, even mm. when it's nasty. And actually, it would have been absolutely fascinating to see it shot like that. Yeah, you know sh- be, uh, there is an example of that. One of the last movies I worked on, the release of when I still worked in DVD and film was a uh, Chilean movie called No by director Pablo Larraín, and it's about the 1980s election in which uh, Chilean dictator uh, Pinochet was overthrown democratically uh, and it was about the ad campaign that managed to convince people to vote against him and the entire film was shot on the old style cameras and taped to make it look like, or treated that way when it was shot on film, to so that it would look and match up with the original video of the ads. Mm. So it looks insane because you're sitting in a cinema watching blown up video on the screen, but if, but everything looks seamless. Yeah, the stuff from the time period and the stuff now, and it and it, it immerses you like nobody's business. Anyway, leaving the aesthetic <laughs> choices aside, which I think is an sorry. issue. No, don't you dare! This is my my sorry for because I'm rambling on and I need to wrap this up. So, leaving aside aesthetic choices, leaving aside my criticisms of dramatic choices made, which I understand why, but I'm not in agreement with because I think that's where we start to detract negatively from the truth and the, yeah. of the history. Yeah, Mazin emphasizes constantly throughout the podcast he's trying to reach a kind of truth. And I sometimes feel that he doesn't recognize that or acknowledge that his dramatic choices are taking us further away from the truth. Well, the whole sort of tagline of the show is what is the cost of lies, basically. So Yes, and so, yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's all very well, but, you know, you, you can't be eliminating emotional motivations for the lead character and say oh no we're looking at the truth <laughs> yeah because because legasov did what he did knowing what he had to protect and that's completely absent and i think that's a really important motivation all of that said it's dramatic it's gripping it's involving it's immersive you really get to see the locations and the moods and the dresses and the, and the way and the and the dialogue, you know, it feels so incredibly real. Yeah, um, we haven't even that... looked at the story of um, oh, I can't remember their names, but the couple that uh, yeah. with the fireman. Yeah, and... because because again, that's an amazing true story. Yeah, yeah. So no, you're right. You know, there's so much we haven't even touched on. So I think on that basis. I would probably say this is a great example of real history. Mm. I think it's sufficiently 
it has sufficient real history in it uh, against the, the fictionalization. So I'd say maybe what do you think? Eighty percent? Yeah, eighty percent, seventy-five percent real. Yeah, it's definitely closer to real than yeah real. I mean, certainly, it would. Be, I think when, as the further we get into this series, I think the more will Chernobyl will stand as a high point. Yes, I think we set the bar at. really high as our first episode. So. No, but I think I think that's important because I think it's the only way uh, we got it. Well, you've got to. It's our pilot episode. We need to set standards. Yes. Um, it makes you me know. think what will happen if we watch Anastasia. Well, <laughs> we've still got that to do. So, last things uh, here then. So, um, Jenna, if people want to get in touch with you ahead of us establishing Real History's social media, where would yes. they, where can they find you? Uh, so, I am at Nadesco Kitty on Twitter. Um, I have started using it a bit more after I came back from a fan studies conference, which was amazing. Uh, cool. So, yeah, uh, probably best to follow me on there. Excellent. Uh, people can find me uh, either at, um, I have an email for the other podcast I do here at Bunkerzilla, which is Hustlers of Culture. Uh, so there's a Gmail for that available over at that page, uh, as well as a Twitter feed. I also have my consultancy, 4DA Consultancy, which this is a production from. And that can be, we, you can find us at, at, at 4DA Consultancy on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So we would just like to thank our long-suffering partners and family for putting up with us getting this yes. ready to do because we've been talking <laughs> about this forever and they've been very great for, gracious at making sure we had the time to do this uh, my thanks. husband took my daughter to the park to make sure there we didn't go. have the screaming child in the background <laughs> and thank you to Ian Bolton head honcho at Bunkerzilla for giving us a chance to uh, put this, make this happen and hopefully uh, your responses will be such that we'll be back with more episodes of yes. real history in the future so it's thank you and goodbye from me Hugh David and from my co-host Jenna thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed this excellent and uh, we, while we know it could be a very depressing experience to watch Chernobyl hopefully this has made you look at it in a slightly different light yes. thank you very much everybody thank you bye